This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, I'm Amanda from Trifecta Fitness. We're proud to be Clarksville's new Get Fit headquarters. Trifecta Fitness is a state-of-the-art spin and strength training studio. Our spin studio is truly one of a kind in this area, complete with 20 state-of-the-art live fitness bikes and an incredible sound system. Our strength training is done in small groups of six or fewer, and all of our strength and spin classes are scalable for every level of experience. Come see us in the heart of Clarksville, just behind Mapco at the corner of Old Trenton Road and Wilma Rudolph Boulevard. Call us for more info at 931-542-6265 or download our Trifecta Fitness app for a full list of upcoming classes. This message is from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Did you serve in the military? If so, you can obtain a free lifetime pass to more than 2,000 federal recreation sites. These sites are located across more than 400 million acres of public lands, including national parks, wildlife refuges, and forests. The lands host activities to fit any lifestyle, hiking, biking, fishing, camping, and much more. Gold Star families are also eligible for these free lifetime passes. Plus, they cover entrance fees for a driver and all passengers in a car, or up to three additional adults at sites that charge per person. Obtaining one is easy. Just go to the National Park Service website, nps.gov, or the National Park Service app. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back. Spit Nation. We are a show founded by a veteran and hosted by two veterans and a military spouse. Our mission is to get people to tell their story to the world. If you're an author, share your tips with Ms. Fitch. If you're a musician or actor, our audience needs to know how they too can get into the business. Coaches, we love our coaches. Come on and share some of your tips with the Misfit Nation to help them become better versions of themselves. If you're a corporate leader or an entrepreneur, come on and share how you did it and how hard you have fought for success. If you're a veteran, first responder, or Gold Star family, we would love to have you come on and just share your story with the Misfit Nation. We always have time for you. If you're feeling down, alone, or starting to see the darkness. Stop. Think about those who are around you. You are not alone. You will be missed. If you feel like your problems will be a burden to those in your inner circle or are embarrassed, dial 988. If you are a veteran, take option one. We need you to keep pushing forward. Don't make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Misfit Nation. Be sure to subscribe to our show 
on your favorite podcast apps and also on our YouTube channel at the underscore Misfit Nation. Subscribe and click the bell to keep you up to date with our latest episodes and all of our news. You can also find us on Heroes Media Group and About Face Radio. Now, let's get to the show. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Misfit Nation on this beautiful Thursday night here in Tennessee. I say beautiful even though it's been raining all day long here. Uh, We're getting that good uh, fall rain, so I have to mow the grass at least one more time here before Halloween. Uh, We also pause tonight to think about my Aunt Denise, who's in her uh, in hospice right now and going through the 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 last days of her time here with us. And uh, I just want to let her know that we love her, love George, John, uh, Melissa, the kids. We're all thinking about you, and we'll be there as soon as we can. Back to the show now. Our next guest. She's endlessly curious about how people navigate life's bumps. What are the traits that make them more resilient? We talk about resilience here all the time in the show. How do they muster the courage to move forward? And what guides them? What's the inner strength that does that? After graduating from Wharton Business School, she was fortunate to land a job in the bond market and later in international strategic planning. Then she hit a bump that turned her life upside down. A rare neurologic disease, myasthenia gravis, which caused extreme muscle weakness and fatigue, changed the course of her life. Where she had once, she was once independent, she was now dependent. Where she was once defined by her job and future, she struggled to figure out who she was. Everything that had defined her was gone. And with that, we're going to welcome to the Misfit Nation show, Pat Wetzel, author. And what everyone... (laughs) saying is everyone hits a bump in the road what is yours sorry about that welcome pat hi thanks thanks for inviting me here oh it's awesome to have you here like i said in the opening there we talk about resilience all the time here it's one of our mantras here for the misfit nation uh, a lot of uh, our audience is uh, first responders or veterans or just people that have been through a lot and uh, have given back to the world but has also hit those bumps in the road like you speak of and have showed that resilience and the courage to fight through it, just like you have. And it's great to have you here to tell your story. Thank you. Um, where should I start? <laughs> As I was going to say, you can, you can go back as far as you want. I mean, I only gave about a couple sentences about you, really. So if you want to go back as far as you want and bring us to how we got here, that'd be awesome. Sure. There are kind of three acts. The first act is crash and burn, okay? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I went from being on top of the world to being at the bottom. Um Health, uh, health situations can be really difficult to navigate. And in my case, myasthenia gravis, which is a rare neurologic disease, was something out of the blue I never expected. Myasthenia manifests itself as muscle weakness in your voluntary muscles. That means you may have trouble breathing, walking <laughs> um, your, with your vision, and you have incredible fatigue. Well, that was kind of that period of my life, if you will, ended when my ex ran off with a new wife, new dog, new job, new city, and I was kind of just left. <laughs> and um, so phase two. Phase two is learning to soar. Uh, I was going through a lot of difficulties with my drug regime for myasthenia, and one of the problems was that too much of the drugs had the same symptoms as too little. So you never really knew where you were in trying to titrate all this. So I decided, without any medical input, 
uh, to just get off of them slowly and watch it and see what happened. And I did that while I was learning to fly. And I never intended to learn to fly. I had gone on a cross-country trip to kind of try to figure out life and visit some friends. And this was back in the late 80s. Um, I wandered into Calistoga, California, which back then was a, you know, a quiet little town. It wasn't glitzy or anything like that. And even wine country back then was not the alcoholic adult Disneyland that we know it to be now. So I'm off in the country. I'm wandering the street in Calistoga. And there's this really oddball airport that intersects the main street. And I'm kind of like, this is curious. So um, I went over, they were doing glider rides. I thought, mm, whatever, give it a go. And I went up and I had a nice time, but it was nothing earth shaking. I got back to Pennsylvania and I heard about some lawyers that were flying gliders on weekends. So I invited myself out for a three day weekend and I was totally hooked. I learned to fly with a World, a World War II naval aviator. He was an unbelievable pilot, very quiet though. I always called him Silent Sam. And I figured if he was snoring in the back seat, I was doing well. You know, if, if I had a... <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I woke him up once with an unintended spin, but that turned out to actually be a fun spin training episode. Well, anyway, Sam had, um, he had three planes. He had the Blanick, which was a trainer, a two-seat plane, and two single-seat 126s. And he had one of the 126s weighed and balanced just for me so I could show up and I would have a plane ready to go, you know, real quick pre-flight, and then I'm flying. Oh, and I had so much fun in that plane. But one day I showed up and the planes weren't there. And I had no idea what was going on. It turned out that all the planes had been committed to an air show. And this was like the perfect Pennsylvania flying day. Puffy clouds, lift everywhere. I was furious. I was so angry. So I'd heard about a group down the road a bit, about an hour from there, that flew really high-performance planes. I used to hear them on the radio. And they'd be chattering as they soared the Appalachian Ridge and things like that. Um, and I really didn't know too much about them. But I decided that day to drive down and check it out. And I pulled into the airport. And there's a sign saying, do not enter, go away. We do not want you here. <laughs> and um, I ignored it and I drove in and I kind of entered a world I never knew existed. I mean, there were these big, beautiful fiberglass ships, 15, 17 meters of wingspan. These things could go miles and miles um, at, at incredible speeds if they chose to. Anyway, um, that kind of opened my eyes and I decided I had to fly with this group, but to fly with them, I had to buy a plane. So I went off on a quest to buy a high performance sailplane, which I had absolutely no ability to fly, but I survived all of that. I eventually ended up moving out to the West Coast. That's kind of episode two of my life, if you will, where my earth life was awful, my aerial life was wonderful, and somehow they, they started to come together. Fast forward about a decade or so, and I'm diagnosed with supposedly incurable cancer. But in going through it, I really, social media, this is 2009, uh, 2012 or so, I started getting involved in social media. It was growing. Uh, I had a very active following, particularly on Twitter. And I created a website that was educationally based. Uh, the website was not meant to monetize, but I had developed also a 
I guess you can call it an app that would provide monetization. I went down to Silicon Valley. I had some interest. And in order to get some money to develop this, develop the market, and the market was really for compassion. This really dealt with showing compassion and interaction and support with people through long-term illness. Um, surprisingly, I had some potential support from Silicon Valley, uh, but I couldn't, I'm not an engineer. So I hired a group to do the programming and I waited and I waited and I emailed and I called and they essentially ignored me. So I um, got my lawyers on it and they came back and informed me that they had registered all my intellectual property uh, with the U.S. Patent Office and essentially said, sue us. Now, I was dealing with some pretty heavyweight people. One guy sat on the board of two publicly traded companies. So this was completely premeditated and intentional. And they knew I could never afford a lawsuit that would cost in increments of half a million dollars. So going through this, I was obviously very stressed. My hair is falling out from stress, not from chemo. And um, I'm vomiting blood. So I go to see my oncologist who's, you know, we can find something wrong with you, 200, you know, invasive, expensive, outrageous tests, and we will find something wrong. And what the, the elephant in the room was really that the cancer had come back. I'd been through six years of treatment at that point. And I figured if the past was any indication of the future, I had 18 to 24 months before the cancer completely overran my body again. So I looked at the options and I thought, I am not being tethered to the medical establishment for whatever remains of my life. And keeping in mind, I don't have a definitive you know, diagnosis here other than everyone's looking at it like the cancer is back. So I sold my house. I put everything in storage, my beautiful, perfect house. I just needed a break. I needed a psychological, emotional, spiritual break. I'd had it with six years of cancer treatment. I had it with the business betrayal. And I decided to just hit the road and I went traveling. And in doing that, I got back to my love of writing. Um, I got into photography and won some awards there. And that eventually led to, this is a long story, sorry. <laughs> it's all right. But I'm kind of, I have a few decades under my belt. <laughs> um, but that eventually led to my thinking, if I'm lucky enough to be able to do this, why can't others? So I created a film project um, called Cancer Road Trip, and the goal was to give seven people every quarter, that was to work up to every quarter, um, an incredible bucket list trip in an iconic location. The first trip was Tanzania, where we would have uh, a story against the metaphor of a mountain with um, Kilimanjaro, the metaphor of survival against the Serengeti, and the idea of the spice of life against the background of Zanzibar. I'd raised, I had commitments. I didn't have cash in hand. I had commitments for about a million dollars and COVID hit and travel ah. shut down. So after a few weeks of kind of hanging out in bed, being utterly depressed, <laughs> um, I decided I would start a podcast because it would allow me to travel virtually. And I didn't really know what I would talk about, but the idea for Bump in the Road came to me. I'd hit so many bumps in my life and I wondered how other people navigated theirs. And the, the podcast is now going on its fourth year, start the beginning of its fourth year. I just published the first in a series of books on Bump in the Road. And it's Bump is kind of taking on a life of its own. Nice. And that's a quick, uh, you know, a quick summation of uh, decades of life and decades of journey there. So I know the audience is probably taking notes like I was and trying to keep up with you. So you got the 
your journey of courage and resilience is not just from the the first diagnosis and you also were diagnosed with cancer after that right yeah yeah so, so two big hits right there plus your your husband deciding to up and leave you in there as well so that's another big hit and then you taking <laughs> taking on taking on the learning to fly uh and I like the when you're saying about the World War II aviator sleeping in the back or snoring while you're flying. That's a good sign. It is a good sign because he's comfortable. So, or he was he's just so used to flying bad airplanes in World War II. This is awesome. <laughs> it may have been the latter. <laughs> I went up in a B-17. It is not a pretty plane. <laughs> right. <laughs> it looks good in, when you make a model of it, but uh, I'm sure flying it is not the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> In your podcast, now is in your fourth year. Congratulations, that's awesome. Thank you. Uh, we this is actually the last show of our third season, so this is this is a highlight for us too. So, a third season, this will be the last show of our third season, uh, and you're the the guest for the last show of the third season. So, so that's another highlight for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. So, you wrote the book uh, "Bump in the Road," and I think it's at eleven stories of courage. It was that people that were on your show or just people that you've met through life as well? Yeah, there were. I, I highlighted 15 people in this 15, first sorry. book. Oh, that's okay. What really happened, I didn't plan to write a book, much less a series of books, but I was so taken with the wisdom of the people and their stories. My gosh, the stories of the people in my podcast are just amazing. And I felt that their wisdom had to be shared. And it's one thing to listen to a podcast or two, but I'm in that 30,000 foot seat where I listen to all the podcasts and that lets me see all the common traits, the commonalities, the, the bumps, the emotional responses and everything that goes into navigating a bump in the road. And um, I realized that I could put together the stories in a way that the average person probably couldn't because of my broader vision on this. And um, so Bump in the Road came to be. The first book is 15 stories of very remarkable people and how they navigated life's bumps and some observations on the commonalities of their stories. And then after this, um, what I'm planning are the books will be a little more to um, topic specific, like a bump in the roads, uh, strong women, bump in the road business, bump in the road sports, bump in the road cancer. Nice. Uh, I'm sure you'll have enough guests uh, or enough people you've run into throughout your time to have a, a probably a whole many, many other series as well in there too. There's so many stories. It's just incredible. The, the book started off twice as long as it ended up being because it was, I had to cut it in half. It was just too long. Nobody would read it. <laughs> I mean, that's a, a good and bad problem, I guess. Uh, having to figure out what to cut out and also having that much stuff to put in is also amazing to have as well. Yeah, I've learned not to be wed to my words. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, I just just published my first fictional book, and writing that, I I left so much, I guess, on the computer because I wasn't writing on paper. I was writing and then deleting, writing and then deleting, writing and deleting every mm -hmm. uh, page after page, pages. And then I finally said, you know what? Whatever I write now is what I'm keeping, and that's what I kept. And I ended it at about the page count I wanted for my first book, and then I'll move move on from there. It's hard. You have to just draw the line somewhere. And you also right. have to draw the line and saying, this is good enough. And I have to let go of this. All right. And I treated it like, I guess it was my child and I trying to make it perfect and do everything I could to not hurt it. And I said, 
just let it out there let the world say what it is and and then I'll learn from that and either get better or not learn my lesson and just write the same way again. <laughs> it's a massive <laughs> learning curve. Oh my yes. gosh. Um, I, all I know is the future books have to be easier because I'm doing everything <laughs> for the first time with this one. Right. Definitely. I'm sure you, I'm sure you had a steep learning curve and especially with uh, using other people's stories, I'm sure there was a lot of legalities with that as well, uh, getting releases or NDAs or something. Well, I have releases signed for my podcast before people come on, but with the people in my book, I touched out of point out of a perspective of courtesy. I touched base with everybody, um, you know, before I did the book. That's awesome. I thought of uh, my book's called Out of the Darkness, and it's based off a soldier going to war multiple times, then coming back and have to fight with the demons in their head and uh, fighting that deal with demons and coming out on the other side. And I've had a lot of guests that have fought those demons and come out on the other side. And I'm probably going to reach out to them to have the, the nonfiction version of the book, of their actual stories in there. So their stories will be shared and let them know. Not, a lot of, not everyone listens to podcasts. Some mm -hmm. people still read, so it's awesome that they'd be able to pick it up and read their story. Yeah, I think everybody has demons in their head. Obviously, combat is a unique situation. But I think everybody deals with parents, spouses, teachers, whomever, have given them, who have said something to them that just sticks with them. I know when I was learning to fly, there was a gentleman um, up at an airport on the ridge. And the point of having an airport on the ridge is when a big weather front comes in and hits the Appalachians, you have serious lift for hundreds of miles. You can really move. Um, you know, people just plot the weather and wait months for, you know, the right weather conditions to come. Well, anyway, I was flying that day. It was a really brutal day. They closed the airport after I took off. And I came back at the end of the day and I landed, nailed my landing. And um, I was checking out, paying my bill. I was waiting for my plane to arrive. I'd rented the plane that day. And this this, I'll call him an icon, but I think that's too kind, um, came up to own the airport, came up to me and he said, you know, you are going to kill yourself in that plane. Wow. Every This is a small community. Everybody <laughs> knows what everybody's doing. And it hit me so hard. I literally had to hold on to the picnic table for stability. I went over to the soda machine and got a Coke and I don't even drink Coke. I just like needed that rush of something. <laughs> and I was just so shaken, I can't tell you. I left the airport and there were um, three gentlemen who were there that day. They were going out to dinner and they said, do you want to come to dinner? And I said, just said, no, you know, I just want to get home. So it was two hours or so home. By the time I got home, my answering machine, back in the days of answering machines, was, you know, buzzing. I had like three or four calls from different people in different states saying, that guy's a jerk. Wow. Pay no attention to him. <laughs> but what he said really stuck with me. And it made, I really went from really feeling good and being kind of on top of the world, which was naive. But by the time I got the, my plane arrived and I had to get into it and fly it, I was utterly terrified. Now, I would have been nervous under any circumstances. This is a high-performance plane. It's a single-seat plane. No one can teach you how to fly it. You just have to muster your whatever skills you have and do it. Um, but that voice really stuck in my head and it, it's so unkind to do that to somebody. We all need to think about our words and the impact of our words because they do matter. Yes. And 
And sometimes you say things in the heat of a moment and don't realize the damage you're doing to somebody or even just without even thinking you speak and you might hurt someone without even knowing it and not know it for years until maybe one day they had the courage to come and tell you. Well, in retrospect, um, I think the guy used to be a used car dealer at some point. And I'm pretty sure he was just angry at missing a sale. Um, (laughs) But I didn't have the perspective at that point to see that. (laughs) So he lost the sale to you and and you sailed away in your your plane. Yeah, I actually became a good pilot too. How about that? that? (laughs) You you showed him you, you had the resilience there to get through what he the words he said to get through that and and show him in the world that you can actually fly and you're still with us right now so it was untrue what he said yeah flying flying required a lot of resilience um i think there's a lot of just practice and time and in a sailplane you don't really have a time to practice you can shoot some landings but you're not going to do that all day um i think that I, I think that flying is absolutely amazing. I wouldn't trade my flying experiences for anything, but boy, is there a learning curve. <laughs> I bet there is. A, I know it's something I've sat in the back of many helicopters and in the back of many uh, awesome military planes. I never flew one, but I was a, a good rider, I guess, in all of them. <laughs> <laughs> one of the guys at back East, we owned our own airport. Um, and we were all, I would say mid thirties to 50. Half of us were divorced. Um, there was something called AIDS, which is aviation-induced divorce syndrome. Wow. Um, um, all the guys love their planes more than their wives. <laughs> um, but um, one of the guys who flew with us, the, the point of the, the private club is that there were no rules. We could do whatever we wanted, totally uncontrolled airspace. Um, and one of the guys was a Navy test pilot. He had no fear at all. I mean, he would do stuff that just... <laughs> you couldn't believe and nothing ever phased him. Um, it was, it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so I bet the Navy test pilots, they get to do a lot of, uh, I guess, hairpin things in the, in maybe test planes that are, no one else gets to ride in. So he has to have some, a lot of more <laughs> mental courage and tenacity to get up there and do that. And, and probably did it for a long time. And a lot of skill. Um, one day there was a, um, an older gentleman whacking the weeds over by the hangar and he had a headset on, you know, for the noise of the weed whacker and the naval test pilot saw this. <laughs> so he comes roaring down the runway, well over a hundred miles an hour, this far off the tarmac, you know, right down almost in ground effect. He pulls up a little turns on almost a dime at the side of the hangar. So he's sideways now. He goes roaring over the head of this guy sideways through the trees. And this guy's just weed whacking away. And this is a a gentleman that complained about all these people flying like wild things and everything else. But if you think about what it took to do that, to to fly the plane that accurately, to go sideways through the trees, my God, there's a whole lot of skill there. And it's a a lot of skill and a lot of... uh... I don't care in in my mind stuff, so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> and that right there shows courage. What do you define as having courage? You know, I think courage boils down to being willing to step outside your comfort zone. And that can be something small, um, trying a new recipe, you know, taking a different path on your walk or whatever. Or it can be something that is quote unquote bigger I don't think it matters what it is or what the magnitude you perceive it to be. 
I think it's a matter of getting outside your comfort zone and hopefully, ultimately, doing that again and again. Uh, Martha McSally was on my podcast, and she said, courage is a muscle. And she's right. The more you use it, the more courageous you get. And I see that as really the more comfortable you get outside your comfort zone. And personally, I think that's where the magic happens. Because now, all of a sudden, that moment is totally creative. What do you want to create? You're not doing your old habitual patterns. You're going to do something new or respond to something new. So what do you choose? So I, I see courage as moving simply outside your comfort zone, whatever that is for you. That's an outstanding definition of that. And uh, sometimes it's it's best to get uncomfortable in order to become comfortable again. And I think that's best for everyone to try that sometimes, to stay, get out of that little box that they stay in and move outside there and test the boundaries a little bit so that you can see how far you can actually take your, yourself and see the resilience that you do have and the courage you do have to move forward. You know, one of my guests, um, Eric Weinmayer, uh, one of the most inspirational people I have ever met. Uh, Eric went blind at 16. So you can imagine the anger, the confusion, the isolation, everything that he went through. He went on to climb Everest, keep in mind he's blind, the seven summits, and he spent eight years training to kayak solo the Colorado River Rapids. Wow. Now he had he had somebody, he had a headset, so he had somebody saying, you know, this is where you are, look left, look right, that kind of thing. But um, Eric tells a story, and this is his story. I want to make sure he gets credit for it, it's not mine. <laughs> um, he divides the world into three groups of people. There are, and we we all move through all these groups, okay? They're they're not rigidly defined. One group are quitters and those are self-evident. The largest group are campers, and those are people who don't want to challenge the status quo no matter what. They want to stay in their foxhole and not, not stick their head up. Now, in all fairness to them, they may be just so beaten up by life that they just don't want to take the risk anymore. And then there are climbers, and that's kind of self-evident too. I love his description of that because I am fascinated by what it takes to go from being a camper to a climber. What does it take? And I think courage is part of it. Yeah, definitely does. And that goes right to what you said about being uncomfortable. You gotta be able to get out of that comfort, get out of that tent, put it, get your head out of that foxhole and run towards the fire, run towards whatever that challenge that you've been avoiding all this time is. And it's easier said than done. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's easy to sit behind a microphone or behind a keyboard and type a bunch of stuff than to actually do it. But if you push yourself to do both, live it and uh, say it and live it, then you're showing that courage and setting an example for us to try as well. And building that muscle. So next time it gets a little, whatever the incident is, it gets a little easier. Your, your skills are a little bit better. And hopefully you just kind of keep climbing in that spiral. You know, it's it's not yeah. a nonstop climb. I mean, climbers can, can be campers. You can sit on the couch and eat ice cream. That's totally cool. But there's something in them that makes them always want to take on that next challenge and push. And I find Definitely. that fascinating. It, it's amazing. I mean, for him... Uh... Being blind might have helped him on Everest, not seeing all the people that are frozen into the into the peaks, because I'm sure that, that throws a lot of people off when they're going up there seeing guy in blue suit or girl with pink shoes, whatever they call it. And uh, 
some of those things. But I'm sure if his uh his Sherpa might have said we're passing this guy now, and he's probably heard the stories of them, so he was visualizing what he would think that would look like. But it's probably a little easier, even though the climb is not easy at all. Um, we'll never say that climb is easy, but that mental aspect can go out the window. You know, it's interesting though that he said. Um, he said because he's blind, he has to use his mind so much more, you know, to to make sense of his world and everything. He has to be really mentally active and focused. And he was really concerned about the death zone and the lack of oxygen and what that might do to his brain. Wow. Let's see. So he thought about it. So he, he, oh, he's he's a very thoughtful. I think yeah. my impression um, is that he's a very thoughtful person. He works incredibly hard. He's very disciplined and very... Um, very into giving back. Uh, he has a, a, a not-for-profit, uh, great organization called No Barriers. And he focuses on vets and also on the disabled community. Awesome. I was writing that down so I don't forget it. That's <laughs> getting my note, little notepad here. And that, that, I mean, that's an awesome thing. I think I've heard of No Barriers before. I didn't put him, his name with that when you said it. So now we got to put them both together and know they're combined <laughs> yeah i think his um his saying for no barriers is what's within you is greater than what's in your way that's an outstanding saying right there that's way way better than he's saying i can come up with so it's awesome <laughs> and uh you you've used meditation to help you get through a lot of stuff as well right oh boy that's one of my favorite topics how long do you have <laughs> <laughs> we got about 28 minutes left on the radio so <laughs> okay <laughs> Yeah, I learned to meditate when I was uh, when I had cancer, and what happened was my neighbors put like a I think it was a nine thousand or thirteen thousand foot house, huge house, right on the, right on the property line legally, but right on the property line, oh, wow. and they went from being quiet to becoming the neighbors from hell. All of a sudden, they were playing loud music twenty four hours a day. Expensive cars were showing up in their driveway. Something was not you know adding up here. At any rate, they were just beyond obnoxious and because they uh, the way they positioned the house i had to re-landscape my yard not only for some privacy but to have any value out of my property so i had everything torn up you know i had equipment in the backyard uh, we built a wall to um and brought in mature trees and things and one night their stereo's pounding it's pounding so hard that the living room uh windows are sucking in and out with wow. the pounding of the base and here I am going through chemo, sick as hell, waiting to hear whether or not I have to go through a transplant, which has a 30% mortality rate, thank you very much. And I go out of my yard and the music's pounding and I just look up at the sky and I just scream and I scream and I scream and nobody heard me. <laughs> that was like the proverbial tree in the forest. So a few weeks after that, um, I read about a gentleman at the local museum that was running meditation classes. And I thought, I will try anything at this point. I am beyond stressed. So I go to the classes. We do a different type of meditation at each meeting. And I decide to sign up for his transcendental meditation class. I mean, it, I had to do something. And that was my lifeline to sanity for, for quite a while. I meditated twice a day, no matter what. I didn't let anything interrupt that. And fast forward at almost 15 years now, um, I am hooked on meditation. I wake up in the morning. I find five things to be grateful for, and then I meditate every single day. That's awesome, and I'm glad that you were able to find that uh, peace in a center, even though you had a 
the raucous neighbors next to you. Uh, I always I I wanted to move away from people when we moved into this house. We wound up in just another subdivision. So yeah, our neighbors are a little further away than we were in our last block, but they're still right here. I can walk outside and still see the lights in their bathroom. So I try to keep myself calm and quiet outside as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. The thing that's really interesting about meditation, if I could pass it along, because some people think it's a little woo. It it's a totally learnable skill. There's nothing woo about it. And the thing that's really interesting is first, the first goal of meditation is to quiet your mind. Once you quiet those ongoing thoughts in your mind, you can observe them. Now, all of a sudden, you have the power of choice. You don't have choice if you can't observe your thoughts. You don't, you're oblivious to it. So you're, you're moving into greater awareness just in your daily life. And you're also, part of meditation is experiential. You experience this deep, expansive peace. Uh, the way I try to, try to explain the experiential aspect of meditation, which is so powerful, is I try to compa I compare it to chocolate, okay? Lots of different types of chocolate. Most people like chocolate. You could read about chocolate all day long and not understand what it is. But when you put a piece of chocolate in your, in your mouth and it melts and it spreads, now you know chocolate. And there are many different types of chocolate. So meditation is kind of the same thing. It's experiential. And what happens is as you have these experiences and an experience of peace, you now carry that with you into your daily life. It's, it's something you know, you've done it, you've, you've had it. And that is really a game changer because I, you, start to, you, you start to calm down. You lose road rage and things like that because, again, you're observing yourself and you're making a choice about how you react. And you know after a while you can just drop into this place of peace wherever you are. And it's really nice. Why in the world would you get angry when you can drop into peace? Exactly. I think a lot of people think of meditation, uh, if they've watched a lot of movies, they, they look into the movie Bad Boys or Bad Boys 2 and Martin Lawrence is doing the woo-saw stuff on his ears. So that's what they think, that mystical stuff and all. Oh, you got to go into to little things where you, you're grabbing yourself and doing it. You can just sit in a dark room and find yourself into a peaceful set of mind or just take 30 minutes of me time and away from everyone and no noise and just something you love to do, maybe breathing exercises or something. Center yourself each day. Uh, me now, I stopped listening to music on my way to work. I listen to books on the way to work just to keep my rage down and just concentrate on driving and listening to the words of the book. And everyone has a way they do it, and they may not want to say they meditate, but they do. There's so many different types of meditation. Um, you know, knitting could be a meditation. Yes. Walking can be a meditation. Being in nature can be a huge meditation. Um, the sound can be an, an entry into a quiet mind. So there are so many different ways you can approach meditation that um, I think there's something for everybody. There definitely is. And I think, like you said, anything, you can find it anywhere. Uh, someone can be running and that could be their way to escape. Yes. Mm -hmm. Running down a trail and then all of a sudden they don't see anyone around them. All they see is nature and, and they're in their best place, their, their happy place, their zone. And they come out of that with an endorphin high plus a, a mental clarity that makes them get through the rest of their day or finish their day off. Yeah, no, I, I would love to see meditation taught in the schools, actually. Um, you know, I, I interviewed somebody who does self-development for, for kids in school, and I thought, what a great idea, you know, to, to introduce some self-development content um, uh, topics to school kids. 
And I think likewise, you know, introducing meditation to school kids would be just fantastic. Definitely. And especially nowadays when they're so attached to electronics. Uh, oh. And it's introduced to them early on. And it's not, we, we can't rock the folks that's happened. And, but there's ways to stop the, the, I guess, the leash of that electronic device, make them put it down for 30 minutes and just think to themselves and maybe do a breathing exercise or maybe write something on paper and learn something, learn something from themselves, find themselves. I think we'd have a lot, a lot more productive children than we do right now. Yeah. I really think people need to learn to put down their electronic devices. Um, these days, texting passes for a conversation. And I think there are real, there's a, there are real issues with that. I actually am on a little bit of a rant on the topic of the art of conversation. I have um, some, part of my podcast is I do um, what I call side trips. They're five minute or less podcasts that let me say what I have in my mind, because, you know, in a podcast, I'm the host and I don't interject my perspective into things, but in side trips, I get to do that. So I think I have three, I think I've published one or two. I have three side trips on the art of conversation because Uh (laughs) people really, people need to like brush up on this a little bit. And I put that in my first book is sometimes you got to look the three inches up and look, look at someone and say hello when you're walking down the street instead of constantly looking down and maybe walking into a wall. You can maybe look up and see something <laughs> and say hello to people, look them in the eyes, and maybe that will help us to start build our communities back the way they were way back in the way back machine and do things right the way we used to. What we thought was right back then, maybe things weren't all perfect, but at least we talked to each other. One of my guests, Nick Atkins, has a great solution for this. Um, Nick is a, was a healthcare exec, and he went to Burning Man one year, and he was really taken with the idea of gifting, not expecting anything in return, and the idea of connecting with people. Well, fast forward a bit, he created these pink socks with black mustaches, and he and one of his buddies went to a medical conference in Chicago, big medical conference, and in these pink socks. And everybody, of course, came up to them and said, what are the, what's the story with the socks? And he, they were giving them away. And they did this with the idea of connecting with people. Because all of a sudden, you're not going to have a superficial conversation of, hi, nice to meet you. Da, 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 da. You're like, what is the story with these pink socks? And it gets the conversation off on a more personal tangent. Um, it's such a terrific idea. And I think it's so powerful. And you said they had mustaches on the socks too. Black mustaches on pink socks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you they have look great with cowboy boots. You know, if I I'm wear sure. my cowboy boots with those, man, everybody talks to me. <laughs> <laughs> you're at a business conference, especially a professional conference, and people see that you're not just going to get the, I guess, the icebreaker speech. Hi, I'm X, and this is what I do. And but you're going to get what does that mean? So that, that's an awesome idea, and I'm I'm sure he had a blast doing it. Yeah, and they've continued. They've become kind of a cult thing worldwide. Um, They do a lot of work in schools with pink socks and getting kids from different groups to talk to each other. Um, It's just turned into a fantastic phenomenon. For for years, all I wore, well, for the Army, it was green socks for forever. And then when I got out, I was wearing black uh, sweat socks all the time. And then right before my daughter's wedding, I started wearing colorful like dress socks. And that's what I wear now. Even when I go to the woods with soldiers, I'm wearing colorful dress socks just just to get a reaction for them other than what I'm teaching them about. So I see if they're paying attention or looking at my feet, and that's how I know. (laughs) (laughs) Just like to keep them guessing, too, what color I'm going to wear each day. 
you know, get get them outside their comfort zone. Yeah, it took me outside of mine to wear wear color instead of just drab. I guess all the time, so it helped out. You know, I like color, but I have to say, particularly during that time, I was on the road, homeless and on the road, if you will, not not broke or anything, but homeless, <laughs> uh, which was kind of an interesting experience too. Um, I really got into kind of an uh, a uniform, you know kind of standard black shirt. I now, you know, supplemented it with gray. I have some beige <laughs> and, and jeans. And, you know, I could put on a scarf and it worked perfectly well. And there's a certain amount of freedom in not fussing like that. Definitely. It, it definitely does. And, and not worrying about, I'm not, I don't, I don't have paparazzi around me, so I don't care what they think. So <laughs> if I'm wearing the same shirt, today that I, and I have a different type of that same shirt tomorrow. That's fine. It's whatever. But well, now, you know, I, part of it goes to comfort with yourself. And right. that's one of the things I talk about in the book, because it comes out in every conversation that I have is I, how do you, how you construct your identity? Because all of us, we start off, most of us, I'll say, start off constructing our identity with external things. Where did you go to school? What job do you have? What's your title? What's your rank? Where do you live? What do you drive? What do you wear? But none of those things have any meaning. Right. And when you start constructing your identity from the inside out rather than the outside in, it's a game changer in that so many things that you once thought mattered just don't. Exactly. And, and once you learn that, then you're probably a lot happier. And you can add in the meditation with that, and now you have peace and happiness on the way. And like you said earlier, gifting those socks out. Be able to give gifts and smiles to people, but then there's another aspect to all this, which is gratitude, and that's you can thank people all day, but if you're truly, uh, I guess, humble and uh, actually passionate, and say, "Hey, thank you for what everything you do," that gratitude goes a long way as well. I actually think gratitude practice is important because it gives you, like for me, I have to find five things, and they have to be different things every day, right? I can't recite the same five. <laughs> Um, but it makes you think. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you, I don't want anybody cheating on this. <laughs> but it makes you think. It truly, this, you have so much to be grateful for. It's really incredible. And um, I think it's a powerful way to start your day because you're starting your day from a perspective of your class being half full, not half empty. Definitely. I'm grateful every day if my dogs make it past 4 a.m. and realize they're not going to die if they don't <laughs> eat at 4 a.m. I'm grateful for that every day. But I can thank one of them every day. That gives me four days a week. So. <laughs> and rotate back through. <laughs> what kind of dogs do you have? I have a, uh, a lab, uh, lab corgi mix, a lab pointer mix, a whippet, and then a full lab. Wow. That's yeah, a lot of dog rest- food. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it is. A lot of dog food, a lot of a lot of scratches on me when they want to say hello. It's amazing. <laughs> I get punched well, in I, the I, head, punched in the head by a big lab every morning. She's the hungriest one on them all. So. I, I miss having um, a pet. I'm still a little unsettled, if you will. Um, I'm loving Prescott, but I keep eyeing Idaho. So I'm going to oh. be a little patient and think about it. Um, well, with the book, it, it makes sense to be near Phoenix. So there's a lot of opportunity for me there, you know, to go down and speak and things. But there's something about Idaho that just keeps tugging at me. So we'll, we'll see how it resolves. I, I haven't decided yet. I'm sure you'll find uh, happiness wherever you are. 
in uh, Idaho. I've heard is beautiful. Uh, one of my interpreters from Afghanistan, actually, when he was able to come to the States, he brought his family and they settled in Boise for a long time before mm -hmm. now moving to D.C. So he loved it there. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, when I, whenever I get settled, wherever I'm meant to be settled, I'm getting a, a, at least a cat and maybe a dog. I can't wait. Nice. Nice. Make sure you let them understand that they can wait till you wake up to eat and you'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had a cat once. I, I've had a few cats and dogs, but I had one. She would just sit on my chest and bat my nose <laughs> until I got up. <laughs> and she, she had food. It wasn't like I had to get up to feed her. She just decided it was time for me to get up and pay attention to her. <laughs> I need my attention, Mom. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> definitely. <laughs> well, Pat... But this has been a great conversation. Uh, I'm sure we can go for hours and hours. Uh, like you said earlier, how, how much time do we have? But I know you have other things you have to do, and my radio time is, is coming down to an end here. How does someone get in contact with you to maybe learn more about you or maybe go on your show or even buy your book? Um, bumpintheroad.us is the website, bumpintheroad.us. And the book is on Amazon. Um, there's tons of information on the website. That's really a good place to start your exploration. Uh, obviously, we have links to the books, to other interviews, and um, a full list of side trips, which I think are kind of fun. They're on the main podcast platforms too, you know, Apple, iTunes, iHeartRadio, everywhere. Um, but the website's pretty interesting. It has information that there is no that doesn't exist elsewhere. Awesome. And the website is going across the bottom of the screen for those watching on video. For those of you listening to traditional podcast, uh, this is going to be HTTPS bumpintheroad.us, and it will be in the show notes. Uh, Pat, again, thank you for taking some of your time tonight to hang out with us here at the Misfit Nation. This has been awesome. I had fun chatting with you. I hope you had fun as well. Thank you very much. This was terrific, and I'm really very grateful to be here. Thank you. You have a good night. You too. For every veteran, there is a story. A story about a calling to serve, to fight for the freedoms of the American people. And every story has a struggle, a sacrifice, and invisible wounds. Warrior Wads programs help veterans recover from PTSD and invisible wounds through exercise, nutrition, and connecting with other veteran leaders. It is estimated that 22 veterans die each day by suicide, and another 30 veterans die each day by substance abuse. These are preventable deaths. Warrior Watt is committed to fighting PTSD through fitness, nutrition, and community. Thanks for checking us out and being a part of the Misfit Nation. Don't forget to visit our website at themisfitnation.com. That's themisfitnation.com. Check out all of our past episodes and get some of that great Misfit Nation gear. As always, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling. Because we are Misfit Nation. Misfit Nation. Misfit Nation. Misfit Nation.